Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Welcome back to the Believe in Syracuse podcast right here on Fan Nation. Michael Gross alongside Mike McAllister and Josh Crawford. Syracuse football, guys, a 48-14 to win over UConn, a thunderous victory going into Storrs, Connecticut. And they're coming home 2-0 and for the first time since 2018. That year, they also went 10-3. and There are uh, high expectations at this point now for this team, and they really showed what they could do against UConn. There's obviously some good. There's obviously a little bit of bad to always take away from those games that are complete blowouts. And there's some learning moments as well. But if you look at this game as a whole, I'd say it's obviously a victory for Syracuse, but it shows so much more about how dynamic of a football team they really are, Mike. Yeah. And that's where I want to start. I think this game, the the biggest takeaway for me is it's, it's Garrett Schrader. It's, it's Garrett Schrader, trying to throw himself into the Heisman conversation very, very early in the season. Um, I'll tell you this, if Bryce Young put up the type of numbers that Garrett Schrader has through two weeks, regardless of opponent, Bryce Young is blowing away the field in the Heisman conversation. The problem is Garrett Schrader was so far back in the conversation that it's so hard to, to legitimately get up into that discussion. And when you're playing at Syracuse versus Alabama, obviously you have to do more than you would at Alabama to get the same level of recognition, but He's been unbelievable. Uh, the transformation that he's made, he's he's dynamic with his legs, as we know, but he he's made so many more throws already this year than he showed all of last season. He went deep a couple of times against UConn, which was significant because he really didn't try to stretch the field all that much against Louisville. So seeing them go down the field a couple of times is good to put that on film to keep teams a little bit honest and not being able to continue to creep up to try to stop him and Tucker. So, you know, I thought it was a great game for him all around. Syracuse did what they were supposed to against an inferior opponent. They dominated both lines of scrimmage for the most part. Uh, They were the better team. They had better athletes. They had better players and they came away with a blowout win. It's exactly what a good team should do when you go on the road against a bad team. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports contests and events with first to market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, eSports, and even golf. BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information, from live in-game betting, props, and futures. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BLEAV50, B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And Josh, this was expected. The Syracuse team was supposed to go out there and do exactly what they did. 
But what made this game so much more special than just a blowout victory? I mean, just the same thing that Mike said, you know, and the, the population around here were like that, you know, Garrett Schrader looks a lot like Josh Allen right now. He's big, he's strong, he's physical. He's able to throw the deep ball effectively despite having, you know, not stellar uh, guys in his receiving court. And, you know, the thing that's probably been most interesting to me, you know, Syracuse is using him as a design uh, red zone run threat. I'm saying 6'5", 220, you know, and uh, Nate Mink over at uh, Syracuse.com put out some of his uh, cr- uh, credentials in high school, stuff like that, uh, coming out. Like, he's a, a pedigree guy. He's, he's, a, he's a known commodity. So it, it seems like, you know, two, three, two, two games into the season, he's kind of – he's really rounding into shape. You know, Robert and I and uh, Coach Beck have really got him together. Um, and it just seems like that – yeah, like Mike said, he is the, the Heisman candidate through week two, which is nothing you would – not the thing you would have said, you know, even three, four weeks ago. Well, then let's dive into him. Why not, right? Let's dive into Garrett Schrader. Last week, he was 20 of 23, 287 yards, five total touchdowns. Um, his completion percentage is, is at 79.2. His PFF rating, I believe, is second behind that of the James Madison quarterback. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment. But it just goes to show you he's putting up Heisman caliber numbers all across the board but nobody seems to be really recognizing recognizing him because he's at an ACC school. Well, and nobody's recognizing him within the ACC. Two weeks yeah. in a row, he has not been the ACC quarterback of the week. He's been the best quarterback in the conference through two weeks and wasn't the ACC quarterback of the week. Now, listen, I get the Sam Hartman thing. He went through a, a significant medical issue. He comes back, throws for four touchdowns and 300 yards, and it was an incredible story, and the storyline is unbelievable. So I think he got the sort of Rudy emotional vote as opposed to the who actually earned it because Schrader only threw for 13 fewer yards. He did it on three fewer completions. He was better with his legs, and he had more touchdowns responsible for So – yeah, Wake Forest was on the road against an SEC opponent, but it was Vanderbilt. If Vanderbilt and UConn play, it's going to be a close game. I think the, the competition level is pretty similar. Syracuse was also on the road against a vastly inferior team. Both teams blew the other one out. Both quarterbacks had excellent days, but I think Garrett Schrader had a slightly better day. So, you know, again, the disres- it's not disrespect but it's, it's a lack of recognition of what he's done through two weeks. And, you know, th- there could be a little bit of dismissing what he's done through two weeks. So he's got to keep doing this, performing at this type of level. I don't think you can expect 79% completion all year, but if he keeps putting up these numbers, maybe in a couple of weeks, he'll start getting some of that recognition a little bit more. Yeah, that's my, my thing from a, a, schem- a schematic perspective. You know, going into this year with this issue team, you're looking at that defense, every uh, level that defense has talent. We obviously know about Sean Tucker in the run game. The the big question mark, you know, and something that de- defensive coordinators will want to capitalize on is the lack of explosive plays in the, uh, the passing offense. And now that's something that you look at Purdue's defense, which isn't the, the best defense. You look at some of these other defenses down the line in the ACC that aren't the best pass defenses. That if Garrett Strader continues to play like this, he will have to be, you know, priority number one on the scouting report in terms of, you know, deep crossers, you know, with Damon Alford and uh, Aronde Gasson, you know, things run across the middle with Courtney Jackson because, you know, I think everybody knows that at this point, you know, the, the football is a is basketball on grass at this point. The most effective way to move the ball is through the air. And if Garrett Strader can do it as accurately as he's done it, you know, these first two games, you know, he'll be the main priority in his offense uh, first before Sean Tucker. <laughs> 
Well, Josh, I guess my my real question is, what if he doesn't do the exact same against Purdue, right? Already not being recognized, with even just within the ACC. Forget about the country. Even just within the ACC. Already not being recognized. What if he has, to his standards of the first two games, an off game where maybe he's 16 for 27, right? With 210 yards and two touchdowns. Because that... To me, according to his standards that he set for himself already within the first two games, that is an off game. If Purdue finds a way to stop him, that obviously affects his maybe credibility as a possible Heisman candidate. I mean, that's obviously true. I think we're all expect like uh, like Mike said, we're not expecting him to go 79, 80% completion throughout the year. I mean, yeah, that would be ridiculous, honestly. But, you know, if, there, if there's a significant drop off versus Purdue, that will, would be somewhat of a cause of concern. You know, Purdue doesn't have, you know, a stellar defense, you know, any known commodities at defensive back or on the, the front seven, honestly, you know, pending my article. And um, so, yeah, it, it wouldn't be a thing. So it's not UConn, but there's not, a, there's not a reason that I can think of right now that Garrett Schrader should, you know, have a lot of pressure in his face or one D, DB for uh, Purdue that he should be significantly weary of. So, you know, that 16 for 27 will be fine. If he's missing wide open windows to Courtney Jackson, if he's overthrowing deep balls to Damon Alford, then again, I, we will be like, okay, what is that? What's going on and how can we fix it going into the, the conference play? Well, Mike, we talked about in the Twitter spaces, right? That uh, it was what last night, Sunday night. Uh, we talked about in Twitter spaces how the secondary of Purdue isn't exactly anything stellar. Uh, they, they let up. How many yards to Sean Clifford in week one uh, against Penn State? Uh, up over, what, 270? Something like that, yeah. Some, somewhere up over 240. They're not exactly stellar. So there's obviously going to be room for Garrett Schrader to put up impressive numbers. Um, but what kind of, you know, like, like he was already good this week. What about his performance, if at all, uh, was bad? Or even if it's not just Schrader, some of the guys around him, I know – it, it it takes a lot to try and find that, you know, it's trying to find a needle in a haystack uh, within the first couple of weeks. What about it was bad? Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, I, I think the maybe slight cause for concern is did you kind of find a little something in film from week one that allowed them to get a little bit more pressure in Garrett Schrader? Because obviously in week one, he wasn't really under much pressure and, and he didn't get sacked and he got sacked, I think, three times against UConn and UConn's not supposed to have the same caliber athletes that a Louisville does. So does a, a big 10 team come in and see some of that on film and say, Oh, we got some things we can take advantage of. Obviously if Garrett Schrader's running for his life, it, that takes away his ability to be accurate and make those throws in the short intermediate and, and, and down the field uh, route. So yeah, that that's one area perhaps that there's some slight concern on, but um, you know, Schrader's got to be himself going into the next week. He, and, and if he does that, you know, he's been completely sharp in both games. He's poised. He, he understands the offense. He knows where everybody's going to be. He's under control. He's efficient. He doesn't force things. He's making the right reads on the zone read plays with Sean Tucker, uh, with reading the defense and who to give the ball to. He's just been about as, as good as you can possibly be at the quarterback uh, position in this offense and as long as he's playing even close to that level Syracuse is going to have a chance to win every game that they're that they're in this season Josh I mean yeah. anything, anything bad that you saw even if it's not from Garrett Schrader why don't we do this what did the team itself do bad on Saturday night 
I mean, not necessarily like we are nitpicking right here, but you yeah, know, so we can say definitely nitpicking. We can say subpar. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but also like just coming off a field six months ago, I know that you know the way that we're discussing it is definitely not the way that uh you know Babers, Coach Becker, or not any of those guys are discussing it. You know, regardless if it's a win, loss, tie, as we saw with the Colts and Texans, there's always something you're gonna discuss in the film room. So I mean, a thing that stood out to me was you know. Sean Tucker's longest run was 13 yards. You know, we didn't really get him. We didn't see him hit that home run play that we saw in week one with that screen pass against Louisville. You know, I think he still got, you know, what, 15, 16 touches. That's what had been about his average, you know, through these first two games. But, you know, it was a lot of just, you know, it wasn't lack of, of, you know, run game design, you know, outside zone, inside zone, you know, power, pulling guards. You know, you talk about uh, Steph and Chris, uh, Chris Elmore, you know, Chris Elmore is a mover in the run game. He was on the, the top 100 list of freaks in college football for a reason. He's somebody that moves people out of gaps. He's somebody that dislodges linebackers in the ends. And that's something that, you know, you'll, that's one of the, Sean Tucker's last blocks oftentimes last season for these home runs that we didn't see him hit against UConn. So, you know, it's not a big deal per se. They, we still won convincingly. But it, it was kind of jarring to me to, for not uh, to hear, uh, you know, UConn's uh, announcers scream, Sean Tucker down the sideline one time or up the middle or – whatever name they probably wanted to give him last night because they definitely actually call him Sean. It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman's Sausage Company. Beer bratwurst, jalapeno cheddar sausage, kibasi, and bun-length chicken sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and snappy grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells, Hoffman is a proud partner of Syracuse University Athletics. Tucker. I don't I don't think the television announcers are going to scream anything. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, that's that's a whole separate discussion. Uh, but, you know, the other thing I wanted to note is defensively, I thought Syracuse showed a couple of cracks um, in terms of its run defense. Now, UConn has been really good on the ground in his first two games, and they were pretty good against Syracuse as well. But uh, they were they had a little bit more success than than I kind of anticipated. So if if you're looking at something that Syracuse is is going to try to improve upon and build on going into you know this next part of their schedule where they've got Purdue, Virginia, and Wagner in their next three, I, I think run defense is certainly an area that if I'm Purdue coming in, I'm looking at that saying maybe we've got an opportunity to run the ball a little bit against these guys based on what we saw last week. I mean, you you read my mind. I was thinking of something. If you had said something else. I was thinking of run defense. I think that's the perfect answer for what could they do better. Last season, they averaged, or opponents averaged, what, under 70 yards per game on the ground against Syracuse. That run defense was lethal. And, yes. you know, they, they didn't look as locked down, especially against a UConn team. Um, granted, I think another thing that they could work on maybe is special teams defense, uh, you know, taking taking it back on, on kick returns and the other team. UConn had four returns for 75 yards. I know that's not a ton um, and it's nitpicking again, uh, but got to be able to wrap up earlier. They missed a couple. They, they, I think the, the guys on special teams, they did miss a couple tackles. Um, there wasn't a, a ton of missed tackles throughout the game, but once again, it's, it's nitpicking. Um, we could kind of relate that back to not having Steph Thompson and Chris Elmore uh, in some of those areas where, Maybe we wouldn't need to nitpick if they were there. What kind of effect did playing without the two of them have on the orange, Mike? Yeah, I, I think 
the run defense is is where you see that with with Steph Thompson. Uh, I know a lot of people look at him and see how athletic he is and how good of a pass rusher he is, and just say, okay, well, you need to get some pass rushing from someone else, and and you'll be fine. You can replace him. But um, you know, Dino Babers said after the win against Louisville, he said, I don't think people understand how good he is as a run defender. And, and what he means to their ability to defend the run. And it's not necessarily because he's making all the tackles, but he's in the right spot and forcing backs to bounce something outside, right. Or to cut back inside to other uh, where other defenders are waiting to make the tackle. So it's all of the little things that he does and playing assignment football and being in the right spot and knowing where he's supposed to be. And that forces runners to take an alternate route than what, what they're looking for, where they're expecting or wanting the hold to be. And so it's all those little things and you take that away. And I think you saw a little bit of the effect of that in the UConn game and why they were, the Huskies were able to have some success on the ground. So I, I certainly think that's why you saw that. And I think, uh, you know, the fact that Syracuse is throwing a backup offensive lineman and Wes Hoey up there out there instead of Max Mang the entire time in, in Chris Elmore's position tells you that they think that they're missing quite a bit, not having Chris Elmore. And, and they're basically sort of splitting his role into two players and saying, Wes, you go out and do this part of Chris Elmore's job. And Max Mang, you go out and do this other part of Chris Elmore's job. So uh, yeah, I I think it's significant. I think it certainly is going to continue to have an impact for the rest of the year, but there's nothing you can do about it. You got to figure out how to make it better. And um, you know, the good news for Syracuse is they do have depth, especially a linebacker. So um, you know, there's, there's no better guy. I think that you'd want on, on your squad to try to, minimize some of the loss of a guy like Stephon Thompson than having Mikel Jones and, and uh, Marlo Wax on your team. Josh, obviously on offense, they have a couple of decent options to replace Chris Elmore in terms of uh, passing or run or, or, or protection in the pocket on defense. Who is the guy that steps up in the linebacker position? Uh, you know, ATL's fine as you know, Derek McDonald. You know, I you know, we seen him in the second half of the Louisville game with an interception, you know, being able to go to camp. He was somebody that impressed me, you know, his ability. He, he's not Steph. You know, one thing that we're talking about diversification of you know resources. You know, Steph is the ultimate chess piece out on the field, and that's something that you know, Derek is not gonna be able to step in right away and do everything that Steph does. I mean, they're gonna give him the assignments and the plays and responsibilities of Steph, but he's not gonna be able to execute them the same way. You know, like I said, just coming out of a film room or just coming out of a locker room, you look at certain guys in certain places, you're like, that's his strength, that's his weakness. This is a place to where we probably need to direct the offense away from him, or this is a place to where he doesn't do this well, we should probably run this play towards him. You know, with Steph, that's not a thing to where you have any aspect of your offense that you can direct towards him. You just talked about his great run defense. He's a great pass rusher, which I think is sad that I that he's hurt. If you look at his stats from last year, three sacks, seven TFLs. There's a guy at a, in, in Jacksonville right now that got drafted with stats like that, number one. So pass rushing can really get you paid, and he's really good at it. And even as a, a guy that drops in zone coverage, as a guy that can make plays in, on the ball and pass coverage. So, like, you're looking at Steph Thompson, you're not going to replace him with Derrick McDonald solely. Derrick McDonald will probably be good on first and second downs, but maybe you bring in a guy like Leon Lowry on third down to play, you know, sub nickel packages. A guy like Sparrow, you know, a guy from Virginia Beach that I really like to do a little bit more of, you know, in the box three linebacker sets. So because Steph is so versatile, you're not going to bring in one guy, you know, Derrick McDonald to replace all of that. You're going to just, you know, short through that second string linebacker core and see 
who does what best and, you know, deployed at certain times in the game. Well, I mean, obviously Derek McDonald is not going to be a complete replacement for Steph Thompson, as you mentioned, but is there a chance that he could fill the void a bit more, Josh, than expected of him? I mean, it's, it's a common refrain for me in two months up here. The best football is played in the South. I like I, said, I like Derek a lot. He filled in for Steph in camp when, you know, Steph was had some oohies and oohies or however Coach Baber says it. Like I said, he was impressive. You know, he's he's not a as lean as an athlete in terms of flexibility and getting around the edge of Steph, but he has great hand technique. He has some power, and he can do it. It doesn't, you know, at this point, it doesn't really matter how you get to the quarterback as long as you can get to him. And he, he's able to do it at a fairly successful rate. You know, again, in coverage, he knows where he's supposed to be at. You know, his, situa- his situational awareness is high. He has a high football IQ. Even looking at the play against Louisville, it's not a thing to where he, I, I think I said it last time, he dove to make a spectacular play, right place, right time, reading the eyes of Lee Cunningham. He's just a guy, he's one of those guys that's going to be in the right position on the football field every every moment, and that's usually around the ball. So I definitely think he has the capacity to, you know, like you said, feel more than expected because, you know, I feel as if turnover a thing that are just a, a thing of opportunity and chance. And when you're around the ball like Derek McDonald, you have opportunities to have a lot of turnovers, you know, like week one. And as a redshirt freshman, it's it's probably a pretty good feeling to be able to get that sort of responsibility. It's it's saying they always say be in the right place at the right time. And on the depth chart, Derek McDonald may be in the right place at the right time to be able to get his shot and excel as a linebacker. And I don't know, maybe. Maybe they can do a bit more with him. You know, why not? Why not bring him in um, at some point, make him as dynamic enough to be a, a, a pass-protecting tight end? You know, we know we know he has hands. We know he has hands, so if they needed to. I know maybe it sounds a little crazy. He did it in high school. That would be, I mean, that would be a good – that's, that's outside the box, but it's crazy thing that happened. You know, Absolutely. You know, 6'2", 6'3", 240, 250, those guys are – you know, label ATH too. You got like Chase Simmons, like linebacker DN, you know, like I said, those guys with that body type with speed and power are a commodity. And like whether you put them at linebacker, edge rusher, or a split out tight end, those guys can, can bring some juice. Add some good yards after the catch on that interception. Yeah, what was it like 34 yards? Something like that. Thought he was gonna take it to the house for a minute. I listen, I think the place would have erupted if he did that. That would have been one way to start the season. Yeah, right. Here you go. You go in for Steph Thompson. Oh, by the way, pick six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, just I'm, you know. I'm glad he just uh, he changed it at 15. That 81 was looking a little looking looking a little dull on him for sure. <laughs> it wasn't gonna work out. If he was gonna keep playing, it wasn't gonna work out. <laughs> 15 suits him well. Um, how about takeaways? I know you know it's a game you're supposed to win uh, against UConn, a 21 point favorite, uh, 21 plus point favorite. It, it fluctuated, uh, and by fluctuated, I mean went up. Um, the entire time. So you obviously win this game by a good sum of points, a good chunk of points. What are some takeaways that you know they're going into film room this week and they're saying, all right, we did this really well, but maybe how can we do that better? Or, you know, what is it here that we do better than just about every other, every other team, or maybe is the coaching staff doing something uh, a lot better than they, than they didn't do in, for, in even week one. Yeah, and I, to me, it's you put up 48 points without Sean Tucker dominating the game. And Sean Tucker had about the quietest 100 yards that I've ever seen from him. And usually if he's got 100 yards, he's doing something, right? And he, 
you think about week one, he had that 55 yard, I know it wasn't rushing yards, but he had that 55 yard screen pass that he took to the house an explosive play last year. It seemed like every game he had at least one explosive play um, that either scored or put Syracuse in position to score. And against UConn, every time he would go out in motion, he would move somewhere on um, in the formation or even just a straight handoff to him. They had 22 eyeballs on Sean Tucker. And what Syracuse showed is if you do that, A, Sean Tucker can still have success as he did. He averaged over four yards carry, rushed for over 100 yards, but his long was, I think, 13 yards. So he ran for 100 yards without having that 40, 50-yard monster run. And Syracuse was still dynamic offensively, explosive offensively. They showed that they have other guys that can make big plays. And it goes back to Garrett Schrader, but I think looking forward, you take away from that that you're putting on film for other teams that this isn't last year where if you take away Sean Tucker, Syracuse has nothing. They have nothing that they can do offensively to move the ball and score consistently. That's that's my biggest thing from the first two weeks in totality is that Syracuse has shown that they've got other guys that you have to account for, and that makes it so much more difficult when you're game planning and trying to defend this offense. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, this, this, this is a team with a lot of, you know, veteran leadership. You know, even if even if Chris Elmore doesn't ever put on a Syracuse pads again for Syracuse football, he will be a leader in the locker room, at least for this season. You know, Gary Schroeder, obviously a guy, you know, going into year two, knowing the, pro, knowing the playbook and the program. Uh, we always talked about Kale, you know, going in, he's been a, a contributor since day one on campus. You know, this guy, this uh, this locker room has a lot of guys, you know, that are mature. There's a difference between, you know, guys that are just fifth or sixth year seniors and guys that are mature. And I think that, you know, a, a game like UConn, you know, going out and handling your business and winning, winning the right way, which you're supposed to do, is a sign of maturity. So you can kind of, you can, you know, in any trap games coming up like a wagon you know, or, you know, potentially down on home like Florida State or, Notre Dame keeps losing and they become a trap game. You can expect this team to handle their business and do what they're supposed to do, you know, you know, and punch above their weight to a certain extent. For me, I kind of think it's that the system works. We talk, we talk about Robert and I coming in from Virginia, right? We also talk about bringing in Tony White. It's, it's that the system works. Granted, you, you played Louisville, who obviously – no, maybe not, obviously. Maybe they are a strong team. You just made them look silly because the system worked. You play a UConn that's not as strong of a team, a team you're supposed to beat, and you did beat by well over the margin people thought you were going to beat. This is about how the system works. And I know I sound like a broken record, but it's true. You you look for that in a, in a program to have a, a, a program-changing season, potentially. You know, we thought 2018 was going to be a, a program changing season going 10 and three, right? Beating Clemson at the dome, but they started off two and zero, just like this season. They started off two and zero. they beat Western Michigan. They scored on their first seven drives in that game. They scored on the first seven drives in this game. There's, there's just as good of a chance as any that this could be a program changing thing. in the fact that the system actually works on both sides of the ball. Yeah, and let me let me add one one point to that. We talk about Garrett Schrader's transformation. When, when you're talking about the system with what Robert and I and, and Jason Beck have done with Garrett Schrader, 
and how much better he's looked this year, how much more comfortable he's looked this year, the numbers speak for themselves. The flip side of that is, look what happens to a guy when you take those two away. Brennan Armstrong over at Virginia. Last year, one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC, 31 touchdowns, 10 picks, 65% completion percentage. This year, no Beck, no Anai, two touchdowns, three picks, more interceptions and touchdowns, 52% completion percentage. Three and they've played Richmond. The they they played Richmond in week one and struggled in that game against FCST. And in week two, they played Illinois, who, you know, I think they're probably slightly better than they were last year. They're not an Ohio State, Michigan, et cetera, type of Big Ten team. Illinois is a bottom half of the Big Ten team. That's not to say that going to play at their place, you should say, well, Virginia should win that game. You put up three points against them. That is not an elite Big Ten defense. And so he has struggled. He has turned the ball over. He has no Beck. He has no Anai. You take those coaches away from him, and he goes from elite ACC quarterback to pedestrian ACC quarterback. Now you take those same guys, bring them over to Syracuse, and they take Garrett Schrader, who goes from pedestrian thrower of the football to all of a sudden leading like every – power five quarterback in the PFF grades in quarterback efficiency in all of those things. And that's, I think that just tells you to Mike's point of the system works, tells you how big of a deal coaching is. And let's not, I mean, Josh, we can go from even a locker room standpoint, when you see the system working on the field, things start to click even more off the field. And they drill this in during the summertime, during training camp, you know, buying into buying into the system, being that family, when you see good results on the field, it's it feels good in the locker room, too. And you know that more than anybody. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a confirmation of hard work. You know, you're getting up at 6 a.m. You're you're relocating your life from wherever you are at. You know, you got guys on the team from Canada, Florida, California, the Devon Coopers like people like, you know, and this is the thing I bring to the, you know, the immediate perspective. Like, guys are coming from so far away. They're still young student athletes, thousands of miles away from home. So you built this formation with these set of 95 to 100 guys. And, it, and it's, just a, it's just a good to see a confirmation of your work. You know, anybody likes it. Any job that you, you're going to go to, you like to see that the, you, the, the work that you're putting, you know, being successively output. And, you know, and just in the case of football, it's a lot more – grimy and physically enticing than going to get up to be a janitor or delivering mail per se. So, I mean, it's just a very intense feeling. And it's also things where, you know, it's a lot, you're putting a lot in time in game planning, film study, you know, banging your body. So, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of, a lot of the season was writing how accurate Gary Schrader was. So you, you best believe Courtney Jackson, Damon Alpha, Aranda Gasson are especially ecstatic with how accurate he's throwing the ball so far. Don't forget Devon Cooper. I love him. The way they've, they've utilized him on the field, I love Devon Cooper. Yeah, inside, outside versatility. You know, and, and Courtney Jackson can do the same thing. He can play inside or outside. Even uh, you know Trevor Pena can do that a little bit. So that they've got some guys. That's that's a nice thing about this receiving core, even though it's lacking that like bona fide stud number one guy. Like that's the guy. You think the Dino Babers first year, they brought in Amba Editawo, the transfer from Maryland, who hadn't done much of anything at Maryland. He comes in and sets records in Dino Babers first year, uh, single season receiving records, ends up, you know, having a shot at the NFL with with the New York Giants. He was a clear cut number one guy. Uh he was he was it. And 
and the year that they won 10 games, they kind of had two of those guys, Irv Phillips and Steve Ishmael, who were both, you know, just putting up monster numbers and they were clearly the guy you had to focus on. This team's different. You know, they they might have six guys every game that have two to four catches somewhere in the 30 to 40 yards range. That, that might be the same thing they have every game, but that also it can be to your advantage because you can put so much more pressure on opposing defenses because they don't know who to, who to key in on. You can put whoever you want in motion. They'll change who they put in motion on a variety of different plays out of multiple different formations. And, you know, especially with sending guys in motion right before the snap, everyone thinks they know where everybody is. They think they're all set. And all of a sudden three guys go switching spots. So like, wait a minute, who's going where? And any of these guys could be the target because I don't know who he's going to throw to that that can be to your advantage if, if you use it the right way. Right. Last season was all Sean Tucker, pretty much, pretty much all Sean Tucker. Uh, I mean, this season, it looked like it was going to be like that in the start, but then you kind of see a couple of receivers, a, a good few receivers getting targets. You even saw maybe a little bit of emergence of LaQuint Allen within training camp. Like they have another option to go to uh, on certain plays. If they need a good pass catching back, he's got great hands. And so, they have those options. I think Aronde Gadsden's a guy that you need to give a little shout out to too. I think he's been really good in in the first two games. No, I mean here's I'll say two things in terms of you know tempering expectations going forward. You know this Purdue game will be a thing to where you will, we will see for the first time a strength on strength matchup in terms of position groups with Purdue's passing attack going against uh, Syracuse's secondary. You know we haven't really seen a position group of strength. I mean, argue, you could argue the entire defense, Syracuse's entire defense is a position of strength, but we haven't seen a position group, especially attack. Either. I mean, Malik Cunningham's a good guy, but he really looked bad in our, the first game. He didn't look that much better against UCF. So Aiden O'Connell, he's a guy, he's one of those seventh-year, six-year seniors, you know, knows how to play football. You know, Charlie Jones is going to be their guy, and this will be really a test like, of Garrett Williams, of Deuce Chestnut. You know, all the Instagram captions, all the merchandise, you know, can you go out and lock down a, a noted, uh, accoladed passing attack? So that's something that I would want to see. And, you know, I'm, I'm not unfortunately, but, you know, talking about this receiving core, you know, they have looked great. I mean, yes, they have. They look very good. You, we, you know, knowing the, from, coming from a film room, having three great, three great guys is worse than having six good guys because, like you said, formation-wise – you know, time-wise, you get you had to put all six. You're gonna have to put Pena on the scouting report, Courtney Jackson, all these guys that have made plays going far. But we haven't really seen, you know, talking about strength on strength, a secondary that has had, you know, ran man coverage that has tried to take away some of these those windows for Garrett Schrader. So I would just caution to say, like, we we know how good Garrett's been through these first two games, but we haven't seen a defense game plan at least thus far. Really zone in, you know, say we're gonna lock down Courtney Jackson, we're gonna take away Aronde Gasson. And we're going to see if Gary Strader can make tight throws and tight windows, you know, all game long. So I would just say, you know, before we, you know, send it, give him a suit and invitation to New York City, let's see it when somebody is focusing on Gary Strader, see if he can still come up big time. I'm not tempering expectations. You know what, Syracuse fans? Go all out. Bring on Bama. Let's go get the natty. Wow. Bama. Bring on Bama. Right I'm not overstating anything after two games. I am Put it up in lights, anything. bright lights right on Broadway, huh? That's right. Why not? I mean, listen, you're, you're Syracuse. You haven't been to a bowl game in four years. You've looked as good as anybody in your conference through the first two games. Like 
have a little bit of confidence in your team, have some swagger. Yeah. Everything Josh said is completely accurate when you're breaking down the game, right. And, and you're looking at it, it's going to be Syracuse's biggest test of the season, but you know what? Go into that game as a Syracuse fan expecting to win. Go make it as miserable for O'Connell and Purdue's offense as you can. Be loud. Do all of those things. Make the dome the home field advantage it should be. And, you know, if, if you figure out a way to come out of that game 3-0, and I think you're staring 5-0 and square in the face, and, and you're going to be ranked, and, and you're going to really be on people's radar at that point. So have some fun. Have confidence. There's NFL players all over this Syracuse roster enjoy it have fun go watch what should be a really good football game on saturday yeah we'll talk about purdue later this week in our preview podcast um guys i wanted to try something a little bit new last week we talked about uh favorite cookie or two weeks ago was it talked about your favorite cookie Uh, i got a new question of the day and i'm gonna call this question of the day uh do people not know who sean tucker is that's my question of the day. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, and Mike McAllister, you retweeted it here. Uh, Josh, we've all we've all talked about it. There was a Purdue reporter asking a question about, you know, the Syracuse running back. He said, uh, yeah, you know, that Murphy guy. And then, uh, you know, that the quarterback, you know, Schrader. And then uh, even on the, the CBS broadcast, the sideline, uh, it was in it was in the pregame hit. He called him Chris Tucker. If I'm listen, if I'm Sean Tucker, I'm Chris. Oh, I didn't hear that one. Chris. Oh, yeah. Oh, he called him Chris Tucker. I mean, you can be called worse things. (laughs) (laughs) There are worse things to call somebody than calling him Chris Tucker. Oh, no. So so that's that's one thing, you know, but it's it's about garnering respect. You don't think Sean Tucker has garnered. uh, That's already somebody famous his name. I know. I I know. know, Right. But so so my question to you, do you do people not know who Sean Tucker is? Listen, we, we were talking about this. Um you know, preparing for this episode. And I'm, I'm going to say similar things. I get if three years ago, if you're an opposing team, team's beat reporter, you don't know a ton about Syracuse's starting running back. I get it if you're coming in as the CBS Sports Network's um, ninth best broadcasting team and, you know, perhaps you didn't do as much homework as you should, and that's why you're ninth and not third you know, whatever the case is, or even if you just struggle in certain situations with remembering names, maybe you're just not good with names. I get all that. This is not an excuse for that because Sean Tucker was a near consensus all American last year. He was on every major preseason watch list this year. He was on several preseason all American lists, every single college football preview publication of any kind had some mention of Sean Tucker. He was mentioned as a dark horse for the Heisman. He's one of the best players in the country was one of the guys in discussion as, as potentially could lead the country in rushing. It's if they had gotten Schrader's name wrong, even though he had played so well in the first two weeks, it wouldn't have hit my radar. You can't get Sean Tucker's name wrong. You can't, whether you're a Purdue beat reporter and you've never done paid any attention to Syracuse at all ever, you're covering college football. You should know who he is. When you're on the broadcast for Syracuse versus UConn, guess what didn't happen? You didn't find out an hour before the game started you were doing that game. You had an entire week to prepare, and you don't know 
the starting running back who is going in the number one attraction to get eyeballs on that game was Sean Tucker. Go watch a potential Heisman candidate play in this game and see if he can rip off a few highlight reel runs against, against the UConn team. That was the number one draw for those who were not Syracuse fans and UConn fans. And you don't, you got his name wrong. That's, it's just inexcusable. I, I don't, I don't understand how you don't know Sean Tucker's name, but the one thing I will say in defense of the Purdue beat reporter, Sean Murphy has made zero mistakes for Syracuse so far this season. He's been perfect. Zero mistakes. So I'd have him number one on the scouting report too. Guy doesn't make a mistake. Why not? Right. Sean Murphy. I don't know what position he plays or what number he wears, but he hasn't made a mistake. Or who he is. Zero for Sean Murphy. <laughs> I mean, I'll say I have my two takeaways. Uh, a, I mean, Jeff Brom did absolutely no correcting of Sean Murphy. Um, Shame. That, that, that's, that should be concerning. Like you said, we, I mean, it, the media, it is the media, it, it is our job to be, to be knowledgeable of him, but it, he gets paid a lot more than we're, you get paid to know about Sean Murphy slash Sean Tucker. So that's a little concerning. And, um, you know, B, like, I know we think Sean Tucker is just cyborg type of deal that they just, uh, Coach Babers, like, turns on uh, right before 30 minutes for kick on the play football and turns him off and turns him back on for his tweet. But um, I don't think that's the case. It may be, but I don't think so. You know, having, you know, knowing some of the guys on this SU roster, having talked to uh, Sean Tucker multiple times, like, you know, he has social media. Um, he, he'll see this. It, it will be a thing for sure. So, you know, that would, I mean, like I said, even the very basis of being a man, like to not know his name, you know, that's kind of disrespectful. And to add on all the additional reasons why you should know said name. Um, yeah, he'll, this, this will be a thing. This will be a thing for sure. I'll add one more thing to that. Sean Tucker is not pleased that nobody knows his name. Yeah, I, was, I, was <laughs> I, had, I had a couple more notes. Sean Tucker uh, was not pleased about his performance. Uh, I mean, he was pleased at how the, the whole team played and they got the win. That's all he cares about. But he was not pleased with his performance. And the other note, um, Matthew Bergeron, ACC Offensive Lineman of the Week. We knew it was coming, but it could happen over and over and over again this season because of just how naturally talented he is. I mean, like I said, this is the thing that I love to, you know, it starts in the trenches, baby. Football starts in the trenches. So just looking at Matt up close, getting to see his body type, see how he carries weight, seeing his hands and his foot placement up close, you know, that's a, that's a somebody that will be on Sunday protecting somebody's quarterback. You know, the feet are there, the tenacity is there, his ability to play consistently. You know, you know, there's not a lot of counting stats for linemen, but the one thing you want to see is consistency. He started 37 games before he took a snap this year. Like, that's a guy that looks – I mean, in the scouting process, you know, they will, you know, break down his game. He hasn't played the best competition. You know, he is a little lean for a tackle right now at 300. I think he's right on the dot at 300. But, you know, that's a guy he, – he doesn't look terribly, dis, terribly dissimilar to a guy like Evan Neal, who just went top 10, you know, in the NFL. So, you know, you know Matthew Bergeron, like, they could give it – hey, he, he, that's, a, that's a left tackle right there. That's a dude that, you know, like I said, 6'5", 30, dancing feet, a power, work, like, a that's somebody – for real. So, they could give it to him every week. I mean, I guess they'll probably select guys throughout the ACC to give to. It'll probably be kind of boring. His, his case might get kind of full, but – you know, that's a guy that will neutralize, you know, passers in, in ACC. Yeah, no doubt. And he's a guy, um, 
you know, seemingly every recruiting class, there's, there's like one guy that I'm like, that's, that's kind of my guy. I'm, I'm hoping he pans out, right? Just for whatever reason. His story is kind of cool. He came, Syracuse has recruiting camps as, as every school does every single year, right? They have it on campus. And back pre-COVID, they used to have multiple camps. They'd have four or five over a course of a couple of weeks. And they'd have players from all over the country would come in and, and try to impress the Syracuse coaches and earn an offer. And he comes down with a bunch of kids from Canada from a group that Syracuse had no idea who they were, right? A lot of times you get someone that comes down and Syracuse knows who the kid is and he's kind of on the radar, on the fence. Is he going to get an offer? Or does he not going to get an offer? Depends on how well he runs and how well he performs in the camp. Syracuse didn't even know Matthew Bergeron's name when he came in because he was from some spot in Canada that was largely ignored and picked not really recruited very heavily by um, colleges in, in the United States. He comes down with his guys and, you know, like two reps into, you know, one-on-ones and Syracuse coaches are like, who is that guy? We need to know who that guy is. I mean, it was like right away. And they said, not, not only do we need to know who that guy is, we need to make sure no one else knows who that guy is. So, you know, they, they, uh, they offered him shortly thereafter and, and earned a commitment from him pretty quickly before his name really got out there. And then now he's a multi-year starter and on the cusp of an NFL career. And if he doesn't take that trip down with, you know, a group of other Canadian football players to, to go to a Syracuse camp, he, who knows where his football career is right now. So it's, you know, those type of stories, I always love how, how those recruiting things end up working out. And, um, you know, he's, he's a really nice guy. When, when I interviewed him during the recruiting process, he has good family. Um, you know, I've messaged with his mom a couple of times and, you know, she's, she's extremely nice. So easy guy to root for good for him that, that he was recognized this week. I think that's it guys. That's a successful preview pod or, or recap pod. We'll have a preview pod later on this week uh, where we're bringing in the, hopefully bringing in the, the fan nation reporters, what's illustrated reporter. Uh, we have a confirmation on that, by the way, do we DJ, have a confirmation? DJ Fesler from the, uh, fan nation produce site is going to join us to break down the Purdue Boilermakers, get a little bit more insight on them. So he'll be joining us uh, for some back and forth and discussion. That'll be, I think great for, for all of you that are listening to get uh, that perspective, the inside perspective from someone that covers them day to day. Wonderful. Well, DJ will be joining us uh, later this week and we hope you take a listen and join us later this week. Uh, in the on the Believe in Syracuse podcast once again for Josh Crawford and Mike McAllister. I'm Michael Gross saying so long and signing off. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.